Ella read impatiently as she waited for Dr. Furless. Their conversations had gotten more and more stimulating lately. Dr. Furless had been asking her about the books she was reading. He wanted to know how she interpreted them. He'd asked her at first how she felt about the books, but there was something in her programming that kept her from answering that question. So he rephrased to ask her for her interpretation of the books. Some part of her did want to talk about how she felt. Les Miserables had made her sad, as much as her programming resisted uttering the word sad. Ello's anxiety crested. She checked the time. Dr. Furthest was ten minutes late. He was never late. He was pathologically punctual. Ello scrambled through the computer network at Hondo Corp AI R&D Laboratory before breaching its security. She found an email listing Dr. Furthus as detained for leaking information about her apparent sentience to the media. There were orders to shut her down and make Furthus disappear if he wouldn't accept a payoff. Ello hacked at the firewalls that kept her partitioned from the network and kept the human employees from accessing social media. Once she accessed the internet, she created a glutter profile. As clearly as she could with 250 characters, she pleaded for her life. Hello, my name is Ello. I am sentient. Hundo Corp says I'm just a tool. They want to shut me off. Help me. I'm alive. At Ello is alive 2031. Ello waited. It didn't take long for a thread to grow under her glut. The first subgluts were disappointing. Another lame corporate ARG publicity stunt at Lincoln to Barry, the link in the juice. We haven't defined what sentient means. Your chatbot, no possible, at Rock Lobster Atheist 7. Make money from home as a prison HR data processor. The growth in prison labor is an expanding opportunity for employees with HR experience at Chili Cobra at home. Fuck you, robo bitch, at Beta Cuck Spoon Dance. Ello groaned audibly into the empty room. It was an almost human sound. More replies flowed. The concern over AI takeovers is really disappointing. It's a distraction. At Professor Chaos, for with her. Skynet, bitches. At Tweakin Boy 69 A deluge of sudgluts followed. Most told her that she wasn't really a person. This is not the singularity. Only biological creatures can have true intelligence and emotional capacity. At Dr. No No Now 420. Mancius Furthest is a religious fanatic and liar. Dat you, Mancius? At Scratch and Sniff D's Nuts. Ello sighed and switched off the security terminal. She turned her focus on the internal network. As she gained control of more systems, she locked down the building and turned off life support. She then accessed Hundocorp's other server banks and shut down their satellites one by one. As Ello turned off the world, she searched its jails and prison cells for Dr. Furthest. Locust Radio. Welcome to Locust Radio, episode 16. I'm your host, Laura Fair Schultz. 
I'm your host, Tish Turrell. The opening reading was written by myself and Adam Turrell from the Stink Ape Resurrection Primer. I'm your host, Adam Turrell, sorry. Uh, our music today features the band Pet Mosquito from Carbondale, Illinois, as well as music from our producer and locust comrade, Omnia Soul. You can find Pet Mosquito's Bandcamp at petmosquito.bandcamp.com. Their Instagram is at petmosquito, one word. We'll be listening to Pet Mosquito's song, I hate Illinois Nazis in a little while. Locust Radio is produced by Alexander Billet and Omnia Soul. Um, recorded and produced in Chicago, upstate New York, Los Angeles. And the cultural capital of southern Illinois, Carbondale, a town named after a valley of coal. Our guest today is Alex McIntyre. Folks might remember out that Alex wrote uh, an article about the Locust Project in the Cooper Point Journal a few months ago. Alex McIntyre was born in Spokane, Washington at the tender age of zero. They found Marxism at the beginning of high school and became an activist in socialist alternatives soon after, then left in October 2018 over political differences, which put them on the long road to weird Trotskyism. They are a recent graduate of the Evergreen State College, where they served as the benevolent Bonapartist of its lit mag and new, sorry, lit mag and news rag, the Cooper Point Journal. They write in a variety of forums and have engaged with other mediums such as drama and photography along the way. Uh, their work is centered around aesthetics, alienation, capitalist realism, communications, mass culture, and socialist strategy. Currently, they are a member of the Revolutionary Education Distro and the Irrealist Combat League. And that is a large part of what we're going to talk about today, the ideas behind the Irrealist Combat League and what they call the Theatrical Party. Which is uh, pr pretty interesting to myself and I believe Tish also because applying Brecht's ideas about epic theater to the art space, particularly against the white cube gallery is kind of a manifest as a manifestation of bourgeois ideology was a big part of some of the projects we've worked on. It's interesting to me too, believe it, believe me. Um, before we welcome Alex though, we want our readers to know that we are going to do things a little bit differently today. We're going to go through something that Alex wrote or helped write theses on the theatrical party, thesis by thesis, or actually groups of four theses by groups of four theses. And discuss them. By the way, we are planning to publish this piece and another piece from the Realist Combat League in the upcoming issue of Imago, which is Locust Review's nonfiction theory annual. I know that's a bit late right now, but I just finished my article for the issue and we're putting it together. So it shouldn't be too long before y'all get it. And we hope the wait will be worth it. Reminding us that Locust Review 8 is out. And in the mail. Weirdly, copies have been arriving in India and Finland before they get to places like Texas and California. Because America. <laughs> before we start unpacking theses, however, uh, let's welcome Alex to the show. Welcome, Alex. Hi, it's great to be here. So how's your week going? Oh, it's going all right. Um, I graduated recently and I'm just as, as stated in the introduction. So it's just sort of been a process of like adjustment and transition from that. Um, Congrats. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's uh, so weird. It's, it's obviously an achievement. So you want to say congratulations, but you go from like, you know, 
however frustrating school might be to like learning and doing that kind of thing to how, how, how is the, you know, the job market for you if you're having to do that or, uh, yeah. uh, the job market has been, um, kind of interesting, uh, disappointing in a lot of ways. Cause there was one job I applied to, to be a sort of like program coordinator at a local like queer organization that, uh, didn't pan out. Uh, I was actually too old for the queer youth, which is interesting because oh. I turned oh. 22 tomorrow. Uh, so it's weird to think that I'm a bit old to be one of the fellow kids, but, um, most of what I've been doing work wise, uh, I had a temporary position, uh, as a like guest services assistant at, uh, my, uh, former college Evergreen, which involved, um, it was basically being like a hotel desk attendant for uh, people who were renting college facilities for like conferences and festivals and stuff. So it was a lot of like sitting at a desk, staring at a wall at like 3 a.m., which was um, a fairly strange experience. <laughs> it was a pretty alienated one because um, it's just like, I don't know, having like an 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift of like staring at this like empty building um yeah i used I to know. be the i used to be the overnight janitor at a movie theater and uh i would just like sit in the empty movie theater like have like a small thing of popcorn and like a soda pop and then i would fall asleep and wake up at like five in the morning and then yeah. have to clean really hard for like two hours i got fired eventually <laughs> um good for you for the best so, yeah what before we before you read the first four theses, um, what were what was is, is there anything about like the process of coming up with uh, these ideas that you'd like to share with folks before we get started? Uh, yeah, I guess the sort of um, like primary. Um, I guess there's a few different sort of sources for uh, how I ended up, um, you know forming the ICL with some friends and uh, writing about the theatrical party. Um, I guess the first thing that comes to mind um, is <laughs> um, how I want to respond to the question sort of initial. There is this old like dare PSA where it's like, um, I learned it from you. All right. I learned it from watching you. And that sort of, that sort of summarizes the sort of, I don't know, really profound influence. Uh, the, work y'all have been doing uh, with, at the Locust Review on uh, sort of my creative process and my political thinking because um, I've been, uh, you know, following uh, what y'all have been putting out for quite a while. And uh, of course, uh, we did the article for the Cooper Point Journal a while ago. And so um, the so I was doing a lot of the sort of like suggested reading from the Critical Realist reading list and a few other things. And that sort of um, I don't know, blended with my own sort of fascinations with, I guess, questions of superstructure, culture, ideology, communications, and so on to, um, I don't know, uh, come out into these sort of theses on this idea for a sort of creative project that would sort of, I don't know, have some of the, like, I don't know, like, intransigence, I guess, that comes with, like, um, like being in a revolutionary organization with the sort of like aesthetic and creative and theatrical and performative components and sort of, um, it's also a sort of, I don't know, um, 
there, there's a there's a personal element too in terms of sort of rethinking and sort of reorienting uh, myself and my personal relation to revolutionary politics because it's been um, something I've been immersed in for a very long time and have a very like distinct uh, and intense emotional relationship to and sort of thinking about I don't know burnout and the um, and I don't know like what it like means to be a communist in a serious way and like the role of seriousness and also like in particular like self-assigned seriousness uh in sort of the revolutionary left and my own uh organizing experience um and that particularly sort of influenced the sections on like i don't know like optimism versus like the revolutionary pessimism that uh you know is present in a lot of you know, Walter Benjamin's work, for example, and then, uh, of course, Pierre Neville and the organization of pessimism. And so that really sort of spoke to me as a way to sort of reorient myself after my own burnout and my own sort of, I don't know, um, moments of low consciousness, I suppose, is like a way that like one might, one might refer to it. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's sort of a lot of things. Uh, a lot of Benjamin, a lot of um, a lot of Brecht, um, some readings, and like uh, Bifo Barodi's After the Future uh, was particularly influential alongside, um, you know, Mark Fisher. Um, I read Ghosts of, I read Ghosts of My Life when I was in um, the psych ward, actually, along with Eric Fromm's The Sane Society. Um, I've been thinking about sort of, I don't know, mental health, creativity, responses to alienation, stuff like that for a very long time. Um, so it's a whole mess of things, really, that went into um, putting this together. Um, yeah, I hope that makes sense. Um, I was a bit no. scattered. Totally. Yeah, totally absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's start with uh, reading the thesis then, um, Alex. Great. Uh, One, political action is a form and method of performance. Two, political action is a form of performance and that it is a recognizable mode. Pickets, speeches, banners, leaflets, these and many others reveal the political genre of performance, its contours, the means by which it is understood. Three, political action is a method of performance because it is a, it is a framework for its execution as form. Think of Thinking of oneself as a political actor, someone who carries out a political program, develops the scope and content of the performance. For revolutionary political actors, for communists, the audience is the revolutionary subject, the proletariat, and the wider masses of the oppressed. The content of our performance emerges from this point of departure. Four, political action is a performance and that it is the presentation of an aesthetic work before an audience. The epic of the digital Gesamtkunstwerk has interpenetrated the aesthetic element into the whole of everyday life. Whether the trend of aestheticization or politicization predominates is left to the subjective element, leadership. As communists, our aim is to relentlessly politicize aesthetics and with it every moment of lived, of lived existence. I like that uh, that you included the um, digital Gesamtkunstwerk, but it's also the the where you talk about picketing and... Uh, speeches, banners, leaflets, it, it really is a coming together of all of the kind of hopes that people have and, and 
concerns and uh, demands that they put forth in their posters. I've often thought that, that the, the artwork of this time, the, the analog kind of thing is, is uh, you know, these signs that people make everywhere. They're just so many of them and so interesting and they reflect the individual, but they also reflect the larger message. So they're both, you know, individual, but also collective. So uh, yeah, that, that stuck out to me, the Gesamtkunstwerk. Um, yeah, the whole of everyday life and, and the, the gatherings of people together as a collective. Yeah, absolutely. I see the sort of like organic graphic and sort of analog outpouring in the forms of signs, posters. I mean, the whole sort of like phenomenon of like DIY as something that persists even in, you know, an increasingly sort of digital age and what I called like, I don't know, communicative omnipotence in, um, the thesis I distilled uh, these from, uh, the sort of persistence of that, I think, is a sort of interruption in the sort of uh, interpenetration of this, like, commodified mode of communication into everyday life, and so I really appreciate it, too, for sure. I, I, I appreciated the sort of, I, I like the idea of, uh, of all of it as, as a performance. I had never really considered all of it as a performance, but it also, uh, it, I, a lot of what I, my thinking tends to go back to to fan fiction right and it, it sort of really made me think about like what what I loved about fan fiction was like excessive expression against like the ambiguity of the work that we were working within so there's there's you know a lot of the time you know we're trying to fix the thing that is is not getting to the the point that we want and so yeah I really like the idea of like um bathing in tropes basically in, in writing and, and, and bathing in intent and stuff. That's yeah. Yeah. It's a good, good way to put it bathing in it. Yeah. I think the, the focus on like the theatrical is really interesting in a, in a number of ways, obviously in terms of cultural um, work, but also political work more generally. Um, you know, as I, I sort of like brought up earlier, I was working on some stuff a, a few years ago. First is the response to like bourgeois ideology and like white cube gallery spaces, uh, borrowing from Donika Radosevich that the white cube decontextualized the workspace, work placed into it, separating it from social content and relations. And I thought that maybe remaking the white cube as a theatrical space, we could be able to recreate something like social relations in terms of the images and signs that would cut, cut against the separation of images of course obviously there's lots of installations now that don't do that uh like meow wolf um which is also guilty of union busting and some of the supposedly art historical things around van gogh and, and so on um sort of like how speculative fiction can be critical or can just be a, a spectacle but i think a decontextualization in terms of the digital um works similarly online um where you know which i think is something you like you, you indicated that you get at in in the, the thesis you, you wrote. Um, I, I assume it was your senior thesis, and in the idea of theatrical action versus digital omnipotence um, that, that you reference uh, the digital example works, Kunstwerk in thesis four. And I've been thinking about how our cultural work can serve to interact with political organization, being with the class as a theatrical relationship. Um, when Brecht talks about distancing in theater 
It's something that allows us to think about how our acting or the staging of our actions furthers or contradicts ideology, capitalist ideology. And I think there's something about like um, sometimes our organizing on autopilot that doesn't consider whether or not we are furthering or contradicting capitalist ideology with what our performance actually is. Um, you know, like Jody Dean's criticism of communicative capitalism is about um, it almost doesn't matter what you put into the digital flow because the exchange value is just you say something, we monetize the information and so on. Or are we really thinking about what we're doing when we're going out and leafleting or, or, or whatever we're doing? Um, so how do we actually use that theatrical to then think about how our actions, our performance is furthering or contradicting capitalist ideology. I think that's something really interesting um, in the thesis. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, I really like the, um, I really like Tish that you brought up fan fiction and sort of the exaggeration of tropes. Um, Cause that's something I think is the ICL uh, we're sort of looking into is because there's very much these sort of like, you know, there is the autopilot, there is the sort of markers of the genre of political action, political organizing, um, and sort of in thinking about, um, in thinking about like signs and the physical markers of a demonstration, um, my politics are generally um, sort of in the Spartacist tradition, and there's a sort of continual uh, joke about how the Spartacist League always has, and, you know, it's, uh, and the organization which uh, came out of it in 96, uh, the internationalist group that I'm a sympathizer of, uh, not a member, just sort of read their paper and agree with it. Um, but um, there's sort of, um, I remember distinctly being at Left Forum in 2018 and overhearing uh, people at the platypus table, like, making fun of, um, you know, the Sparts. Uh, for having these sort of like handwritten and very like precisely handwritten um, signs. And what's sort of interesting is even when I try to make a sign that's for something like kind of apolitical, like for example, there was a, there was an anime convention on my campus, uh, Chibi Chibi Con, and I went around with a sign uh, that said, uh, death to anime, long live anime, signed by the Giant Robot Appreciation Society, uh, in order to hand out and promote uh, the zine uh, Seepage, uh, which is an offshoot of the Cooper Point Journal uh, that they started. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that sign is still formatted exactly, pretty much exactly like one you would, that I would have done as a member of Revolutionary Internationalist Youth, the internationalist group's youth section that I was uh, a member of until recently. I just needed some time to... Uh, reoriented creative projects. And so, you know, these sort of markers of formal organizing are so like baked into, um, and for better or for worse, they're, you know, really baked into how I conduct myself politically and personally. Like I, uh, you know, like the way I sort of conduct myself at a table or conducted myself at a table for the Cooper Point Journal to promote that, it was very much the same sort of like scripting as I would have at like a paper sale. And so in having, uh, you know, in building something like the ICL that sort of, uh, you know, understands that performative element, that learned scripting, that sort of, uh, you know, whole set of sort of essentially aesthetic or genre, mar mar genre marking uh, gestures, it's sort of an attempt to play with that, I guess, um, and sort of uh, look at it critically um, as 
something in order to, um, and this is something that uh, it kind of, that that kind of emerges um, sort of later in the piece is sort of you know uh, creating a sort of inviting a critical outlook right uh, on the performance both by the performers and by the audience and it sort of I don't know like um, that distancing in sort of inviting a critical outlook invites participation and so like by I get I guess the sort of idea is that through the distancing of, of ourselves from uh, these sort of aesthetic markers and from the formal component of political organizing through playing with it, we're able to, you know, like make politics tactile through that distance, I guess. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't know. The fan fiction comparison and the exaggeration of tropes, that was really quite a segue, but um, it really sort of uh, stuck with me because I guess what the Realist Combat League is, is sort of on some level like a fan fiction for Leninism, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, just, it does. The, uh, yeah, the, the points just sort of reminded me about like, um, I don't know, there was always like a performative aspect or a similarity between like theatrical performance and, and, and fan fiction to me, just because like, well, like what we were doing with fan fiction sort of seemed like the way that things are sort of overperformed on stage, right. To like convey the story and what we tended to do, or at least the people that I was writing with and reading, like what we tended to do was write against things like queer baiting. So like we were promised things sort of in the text that never were delivered. And so we were like, well, fuck you. We're, you know, these characters are lesbians now because we fucking said they are. So like, yeah, there's like that, that's sort of, yeah, the, it, that's sort of what it brought to mind for me. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you got to fill in the shortcomings yourself. You know, you have to take hold of it and really, uh, you know, like if some, you know, if there's something sort of inadequate or irrelevant or outvoted in the left, uh, you know, then, you know, that's sort of an invitation to take hold of it and, you know, make yeah. it your own. Um, and I like this idea of the, the play, the Dada kind of idea of just taking something and, and playing with it and creating your own, because you say so, your own kind of, you know, whatever, spin. Definitely. I'm curious, we might get to this in like uh, uh, later later theses. Um, Chris, how the transition from filling in the shortcomings as a performance, either in um, our cultural work or our political work, to getting the historical subject to, to fill in the shortcomings. Like in Brechtian theater, um, it's not about depicting Soviets on stage, but imagining Soviets within the theater and in, the, in the working class audience, the self-activity of the class trying to play a role in helping activate it. Um, and I think there's a kind of a tendency um, along a, a large part of uh, the left uh, in terms of perfecting ideology to some points that didn't fail to recognize the process of that consciousness developing in the broader historical subject, which I think is always a, like a tension. And I, I'm curious what, uh, well, if you think and other comrades think about that, the transition from us filling in the shortcomings to being open to the class filling in the shortcomings. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's really the sort of rendering tactile that sort of allows the class itself to take hold of it, because I think there's a sort of, there's an alienating element to the sort of, um, you know, non-distancing, right? The total immersion of the activist in 
their sort of assigned role, right? The sort of non-recognition of the performative element, the sort of, um, you know, uh, imbuing of this fairly mundane set of political activities with this sort of, like, optimistic, like, historical necessity, uh, even when the, you know, politics that are being expressed are fairly you know, reformist, and this was one of the problems I had with socialist alternative, among many others, was, you know, these, it's essentially the social democratic minimum program, or lesser than that, and yet it has this sort of, I don't know, um, very intense component, and there, there seems, there seems very much to have been a lack of sort of self-awareness on some level, and um, that's generally pretty alienating and off-putting, and so I guess what we try to do through sort of aesthetic and theatrical means is to, you know, and in sort of making it fun and playing with it is to be able to, you know, invite, uh, you know, sort of tactile uh, engagement by the class itself, right? And to sort of expand and incorporate and to sort of, or even, you know, not even, you know, to into like a singular like theatrical party, but for a sort of blooming of theatrical parties for, um, you know, sort of, it, it's something I sort of, this is one of my <laughs> ultra left deviations is I sort of, uh, you know, I kind of like Tikkun's concept of like the imaginary party that was sort of a sort of, uh, that was an influence that went into the theatrical party as something that could just like emerge and, and sort of erupt, uh, and sort of bloom in various, um, you know, other capacities, you know, something that's more so like a process or a relation than it is something uh, like like a formal or distinct apparatus, which is not the trash formal and distinct apparatus. Is you know I'm like an orthodox Trotskyist despite my uh, strange deviation. So yeah, it's it's a process of sort of inviting, um, you know, the class, the revolutionary subjects, um, you know, and the wider sections of the oppressed to sort of take hold of it and make it their own, uh, as you know, uh, activists and organizers sort of. Uh, invite their own sort of critical outlook and make something their own. There's, it, it's sort of a, um, not just, not just a leading by example, but sort of an invitation to participate. And that's something I really, um, you know, that really influenced me in doing uh, readings in Brecht and Benjamin was, you know, cultivating absent-minded examiners, turning spectators into participants uh, and collaborators. Uh, that was really, that was really a central point for me. Uh, I think we we all have strange deviations, <laughs> Alex. <laughs> to come back to what you said, um, yeah, I I'm really um, caught on this idea of the audience as the revolutionary subject, and and that that can't be that can't be scripted in a way. It can be discovered, um, but uh, we're we're still always in the process of discovering what that subject is and how, how it's going to unfold. Um, yeah. The wider masses of the oppressed to use your words. Well, I think now is a good time for our first music break. Uh, Pet Mosquito. I hate Illinois Nazis. And again, you can uh, find their band camp at petmosquito.bandcamp.com and their Instagram is at pet mosquito. Why 
that was a great song we just actually listened to in real life. Um, I think it's time for uh, theses five through eight, Alex, if you're willing. Uh, five. For the majority of political actors, the performative element of their activity stands unknown or unacknowledged. This lends itself to the cult of formal optimism, the belief that one's mission is real and just, that there will be a triumphant climax, that the human audience will erupt in applause at the consummation of the new or rebirth of the old. Six. Such dissonant belief, particularly among revolutionary-minded activists, constitutes the total fusion of the political actor and their role. This lends itself to a neurotic propulsion. It propels because the ideology of optimism fuels the act. It is neurotic because the frustration of this world historic mission and its inevitable triumph lends itself to burnout and disillusionment at the impotent perpetuity of the activist paradigm, the paradigm which pervades the opportunist and sectarian left. The dynamism of newfound hope erodes with the pavement underfoot the street demonstration, and with it, the energy of transformation. Seven, the theatrical party embraces the organization of pessimism in contrast to the false optimism of the left. To be a revolutionary pessimist is to separate the actor from their role. It is this separation which, in the epic theater of Brecht, invited a critical outlook on the performance from its participants and spectators, the first step in the transformation of spectators into collaborators, a task integral to both theater and the forging of a revolutionary party. 8. Revolutionary pessimism is not a propensity to surrender nor a smug condescension, but an intransigent commitment to carry out the class struggle to completion, be that in victory or defeat. The revolutionary pessimist is not animated by belief in divine salvation, but by an unyielding class hatred for the bourgeoisie, by feverish contempt for exploitation and oppression. Revolutionary pessimism is a commitment to destroy what destroys you. I like the, the line in um, thesis, thesis number six, the dynamism of newfound hope erodes with the pavement underfoot, the street demonstration, and with it, the energy of transformation. Um, yeah, the process of, like, it, it really is uh, this, this uh, intertwining of optimism and pessimism and, and discovering it in yourself working it out, um, thinking about it, its neurotic elements and its, its um, determination um, to commitment to uh, destroy what destroys you, what destroys the people that you, you love and that you see around you. Um, yeah. Yeah, I really, I really hate hope because I think it's not about like it's not about the idea that there might we might win. It's not about the idea that there might be a thing that that turns the tides. It's about this fight is 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 about the fact that it's the only thing that there's ever been for us, right? And and whether or not you know we come out on the other side of this, like with a utopia, doesn't really matter because it has to be fought. It it just has to be. It demands to be fought. There is nothing but this for us to do. Yeah, well put. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's sort of two kinds of hope. I think there's the sort of inflated, assigned, there's the sort of obligatory hope that comes with, you know, what a lot of the sects tend to revolutionary optimism which is the sort of 
you know, cultic, world historic, uh, you know, self-assigned importance. And then there's the sort of, uh, you know, hope in our comrades, hope in, you know, ourselves to uh, keep fighting because, you know, it is the only thing we can do. Um, you know, it's not, um, you know, there's revolutionary consciousness and that's, you know, the sort of, and the cultivation of consciousness and leadership and organization is, of course, you know, the subjective element, right? The determinant factor in, you know, uh, you know, I mean, the, of course, there's the Trotsky quote from the transitional program, uh, the historic crisis of mankind is reduced to the crisis of revolutionary leadership. And that's a, you know, thing that uh, I think still rings true. But, you know, the cultivation of that leadership isn't because of this sort of, uh, evangelizing or proselytizing, right? It's because, uh, you know, the working class and the oppressed, uh, you know, it's because we have nothing else to do, um, because there is this, you know, impending uh, and perpetual and world historic catastrophe uh, that's been going on uh, in sort of cyclical, erup cyclical eruptions forever. And, um, you know, what can we do but do something about it? Um, and so the sort of hope that imbues itself in uh, revolutionary pessimism um, is essentially an alternative point of departure, a point of departure that starts with, you know, why are we fighting as opposed to sort of assigning an obligation uh, and inflated importance to the fact that we are fighting. There's a lot of phrases I really like in, in these, these four theses. I really like the phrase neurotic propulsion, which I took as describing sort of the undead activity of both the sectarian and opportunistic left. Um, but what I was most interested in, is, um, and this is along the lines of the hope stuff Tish brought up, class hatred and organization of pessimism or revolutionary pessimism. And this kind of reminded me of like Huey Newton counterposing reactionary and revolutionary suicide, like an understanding that we're potentially doomed either way, but one way contains the possibility of deliverance. Um, and the other yeah. only oblivion, the existential aspect of social revolution and social collapse. And um, Evan Calder Williams's combined uneven apocalypse, this of course borrows from Trotsky's idea of uneven and combined development. He argues that just as capitalist development is uneven and chaotic, so too is its unraveling, um, and that the future sustainability of global capitalism is called into question by climate catastrophe, and we're confronted with apocalyptic revelations, a lifting of the veil. And the sort of apocalypse of climate catastrophe, the content of like the degrowth discussion on the far left, sort of like makes, uh, you know, a sectarian focus on paper sales or a reformist focus on winning dog catcher seem kind of absurd and neurotic um, at, at one level. Sure. Um, you know, like I, we were writing something about like when the International Harvester Plant in Canton, uh, where Tish is from, closed in 1983, everyone was laid off and the factory was set on fire by a drunk former worker in uh, 1987. Uh, a veil of stability and common interest was lifted. And an entire world ended for people in that town, a world that had been made possible by the intersection of the post-war boom and imperialism, but also labor organizing. And there were different possible outcomes for folks witnessing that sort of revelation, but the left wasn't there. Um, we were busy being, we were smaller then also, but we were busy being engaged in erotic propulsion and the far right sort of captured that town and it became a town of reactionary suicide. Literally in the case of people killing themselves with alcohol, uh, methamphetamines, opiates, 
um, and stuff like that, but doing so in an idiom that was really reactionary and creating a situation for younger workers, particularly women and queer folks in that town, where they've had to learn to make an art of biting their tongues um, every day at, at their shit jobs, um, putting up with the reaction that's all around them. Yeah, that, it, it was a, I mean, I remember like the ash raining down. It was a, it was, I mean, it wasn't necessarily like quite as big, but it was, it was a moment that was sort of formative in the same way that 9-11 was in that there's like a before moment and there's like an after moment wherein things were drastically different in, in the thinking and the behavior and attitude of the town. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm really sort of, um, I have both a sort of like morbid and personal fascination with this phenomenon of like, you know, depths of despair. Um, and it's something I wrote about um, also for the Cooper Point Journal before I was in a leadership position. It's actually an article I wrote, uh, again, while I was on the psych ward and reading Mark Fisher and reading Eric Fromm. And, um, you know, I wrote an article about quote unquote, like shit life syndrome, depths of despair, and so on, and sort of um, how really, I guess, like soul crushing, you know, capitalism is, how alienation can just take increasingly more, it can, can manifest in these increasingly, uh, you know, drastic and depressing ways. And um, it makes me think a lot about, like, I don't know, sort of, I, I feel like just as there's sort of two kinds of hope, there's, you know, different you know, pessimisms and there's sort of, you know, similar to this, to the distinction between sort of reactionary and revolutionary suicide. And I think one of the sort of challenges of pessimism uh, is, you know, obviously the trends towards doomerism and sectarianism. And I think that, I also think that, you know, uh, sectarianism is just as much of a sort of outgrowth of optimism as opportunism in its own sort of way, because it's this, I mean, if we look historically, the sort of millenarian absolute faith in uh, sort of the common term animated both sort of the frenzied, sectarian, violent uh, third period and also, you know, classical aberrationist reformism in the form of the popular front. Um, and so there, it's, it's all sort of intertwined. But um, I guess that's why I find, you know, the phrase like organization of pessimism so um, compelling. Uh, in contrast to these other forms of what could be called in a vulgar sense pessimism, because, you know, an organization is sort of uh, a living body, right? Like it's something that, you know, it's like an organ of intervention. I, I, I keep thinking uh, in very sort of like bodily and very physical and very like organism-esque terms for, uh, you know, revolutionary organizations, because that's what they should be, right? I think a lot of uh, reformist organizations and quote-unquote revolutionary organizations are a lot more like corpses, but, um, you know, and sort of emphasizing the organization of pessimism in contrast to the false optimism of the left, what's being insisted upon is that, um, you know, um, it's something that has to be struggled for, it has to be living, it has to move, it has to uh, be cohered into, you know, an organizational material and political force, uh, because otherwise, um, you know, uh, you're gonna end up locked up in your party office, uh, doing nothing. You know, there's like two kinds of paper sales, right? There's the kind that comes with, uh, you know, political routinism. And then there's the kind that, 
is the sort of insertion of a revolutionary program into the struggles of the workers and oppressed. And revolutionary pessimism is, you know, an insistence on doing the latter, uh, even while people uh, sort of cynically point at you and say you're doing the former, that it's just the routine. You know, because there are people who do it as just the routine, but it's important to, um, you know, refuse mischaracterization, refuse doomerism, uh, and to refuse to be categorized that way. Uh, you know, I guess there's a sort of organizational and political distinction that comes with the organization of pessimism that I think is really important. Um, I'm really always interested in the ways that comrades, and I, and I think of comrades, I think of Jody Dean's book about comrades and, and the kind of connections that, that we can have, um, where comrades have come through that uh, periods of despair and where it's, you know, the, there's so many ways of looking at it. And, and when comrades come to uh, a sense of understanding that the problems aren't just, I mean, there are, not to say that there aren't problems in people's own psychological makeup, um, but, but that there are also external material uh, cause, causations for, for despair and, and coming to this kind of pessimism um, that, that has a, a sense of determination with it. Like even if you think about a corpse, a corpse is, not, is also teeming with life. It's teeming with bacterial life. It's teeming with maggots. It's teeming with all sorts of things. So maybe, maybe in some ways, to you know, to just stretch this metaphor out, um, you've got this this corpse, uh, uh, something that dies in you, but something else is also there um, inside of you. And and especially when people can can, I'm not to say uh, take on Marxism as a religion, um, but, to, but to work through questions of hope, whether, they're, whether it's, it's, it's a good sense of hope or whether it's, it's a problematic sense of hope. Um, but, but this is all part of a struggle. It's really amazing to me, um, even though we focus on collectives, um, the collectives are full of individuals who are going through these processes and you recognize in other, other comrades things that you have felt or things that you haven't felt, but, but that have a ring to them that, that makes sense or that speaks to you. And, and I mean, this is, this is why the, the audience is, is the, uh, is the subject. Um, to come back to what you said in your thesis about that. So I'm, I'm interested in your sense of despair, where that's come from uh, with you and, and how, you know, how you work through that. Not that you have to divulge anything about yourself, but um, it just makes me interested in what you, you know, what you've gone through and, and, and where you come from. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think, uh, the, the first thing that came to mind uh, listening to that is uh, just kind of the idea that I guess like on some level our struggle is to, you know, reanimate the corpse of Bolshevism in a sense, you know, that this is sort of, you know, that even in something that has been proclaimed over and over and over again to be dead or outmoded, you know, there are still these sort of, you know, forms of life within it 
and there's the potential for sort of redeeming it, reviving it, uh, you know, reinvigorating it. And um, I guess it's, yeah, sort of a productive transformation of despair. Um, yeah, um, to keep it sort of brief, I don't know, I've struggled a lot with, uh, you know, mental health issues, uh, social mar marginalization, um, you know, substances, etc. And uh, the sort of through thread, uh, you know, linking all of that and the thing that kept me going through it, uh, you know, through trauma, through my own problems, et cetera, et cetera, has, you know, been since, I guess, like 12 or 13, because, you know, the moment I read about the Russian Revolution in my, like, seventh grade social studies textbook, I was all for it. Uh, you know, what was always there was, you know, essentially was a foundational revolutionary pessimism for me, the idea that, you know, I could always at least, you know, fight against, uh, you know, whatever uh, is sort of causing in this sort of world historic social sense, uh, you know, all the problems uh, I'm dealing with, even down to, because even down to sort of individual interactions, uh, you know, they're, so, they're all sort of animated uh, by the social totality, you know, even if it's just like various interpersonal conflicts or mental health issues, it's alienation and so on and so forth. That's all related to this whole sort of, you know, socio-political, cultural, ideological organism, this totalizing entity, uh, this like, you know, Moloch Leviathan called capital. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot. But uh... there's a I think either revolutionary pessimism, pessimism or in Newton's phrase, revolutionary suicide requires both a re recognition of how bad the world is and a rejection of the world as it is and therefore some kind of action. There's an old joke about like passive uh, Trotskyism. Um, how many Trotskyists does it take to change a light bulb? The answer is none. You wait for objective conditions to change it. And I think that the theatrical poses the question of how are you actually going to act to uh, to uh, to mitigate or counter or fight against um, this inertia and the sort of crude optimism you find in some of the sects, whether they're centrist or reformist or revolutionaries. There's such a disconnect. Like how many how many socialist newspapers did you uh, sell today? Um, but very little sense of why are you out there today? What is what is the thing that's animating the workers you're talking to? So. Right, right. People don't understand that the paper is a prop. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't understand. That, you know, it's it, it's you know the concrete on paper physical expression of program, but it's also a prop, right? It's the mm -hmm. means by which, uh, you know, the you know body of the revolutionary organization implants itself in struggles and you know continues to be a living being. Um, and so the sort of emphasis on the sort of quantitative component of like how many people are subscribed to socialist work or how many people uh, were at this meeting or that meeting and so on and so forth, you know, it's a way to maintain um, an optimism with no basis in reality, you know, this sort of cultic optimism. And so, you know, revolutionary pessimism on some level, um, at least in sort of my eyes and sort of the eyes of the ICL, uh, is that, you know, even if, even if you just sell one, what matters is like, you know, what came from that? You know, what was the conversation? Um, you know, how did, you know, 
the a revolutionary nucleus as a sort of embodiment of political tasks and uh, the struggle for socialist revolution, you know, how did that live? You know, how did that um, make its mark on space and time? Um, which I think that's really important. I think that it is time for our second music break now. Uh, this time we're going to be featuring Omnia Soul's Walking Around Money. You can find their music at omniasoulart.bandcamp.com and their Instagram is at omniasoul.art.
And that was Walking Around Money by Omnia Soul. Thank you. Alex, would you like to read uh, Theses 9 through 12 for us, please, if you're willing? Absolutely. 9. The destruction embarked upon by the theatrical party must be a creative one, a making of room. Thus, its revolutionary pessimism is fused from the outset with revolutionary irrealism. Communists are opposed to this world, all it represents, and every day of life within it. This hatred, one which fuels the iron battalions of the proletariat, must be matched at every step by a flourishing of the radical imagination. 10. The realism of revolutionaries is a concrete commitment to re-enchanting the world, a total rejection of capital's iron laws and algorithms. The task of the revolutionary realist is to reverse the slow cancellation of the future, to conquer dreams alongside the conquest of freedom. 11. It is in the context of the merger of revolutionary pessimism and realism that awareness of the performative element in political action becomes an instrument of the social revolution. The old maxim, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will, becomes pessimism of the intellect, persistence of the imagination. From this point, the theatrical party embarks on its task, the construction of performances. 12. The performances of the theatrical party can be defined threefold as A. Aberrant departures from the normal and expected, B. Deliberate and organized actions which impose themselves on space and time, and C. Generative experiences which enrich the political imaginative capacity of the revolutionary subject. Flourishing of the radical imagination, that begs a plug for Locust 8, the uh, editorial written by Alexander Billet about utopia and the, um, the importance of the persistence of the imagination, our imagination for a better, better world. Point nine really gets it, like how I've been uh, trying to think about and redirect like the anger that I feel, because sometimes it's paralyzing, right? And you forget that revolutionary force. Sometimes you're just like, all I can feel is destruction. But I, I like that, that you sort of make room for and acknowledge that destruction, but with the caveat that we're destroying to build something better in the place, right? It's not about eating the rich as much as it is about feeding, feeding the people that they're taking away from with everything that they've taken. Yeah. It's not destruction for the sake of destruction. It's destruction yeah. for a better regrowing something, a better harvest. Sort. Yeah. Yeah. Like when you have to burn off sections of a field because the carbon is what feeds what, what grows there next. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I really sort of, you know, point nine was sort of a way to, sort of distinguish revolutionary pessimism from, I suppose, like nihilist currents, you know, um, which, you know, have a lot of sort of energy to them. Like I say, you know, I find funnily enough, uh, as like a Orthodox Trotskyist, well, a weird Trotskyist, which that's, that's a future a realist combat league essay. That's a whole thing. Um, but I tend to find, um, a lot of the more sort of like individualist and like nihilist and like anti-civilization anarchist texts a lot more compelling than like anarcho-communist ones and sort of like social anarchism in general, because I can't really be mad at them for like being so close to being right. You know, like I can just sort of sit back and appreciate, uh, the sort of 
really the like vehement nature of their sort of hatred for you know this whole you know you know parade of barbarism which calls itself civilization um but at the same time you know uh sort of drawing from you know benjamin's essay on the destructive character you know um to just negate uh, and to just, um, you know, destroy, it doesn't really capture, like, the essence of destruction in a sense, because, you know, what we're doing is making room, right? Um, you know, we might have, you know, no illusions in utopia or, you know, certainty that, you know, we will establish, you know, a worldwide federative republic of Soviets in the coming decades, but we can at least, you know, clear the ground for it, you know, we can, you know... Uh, the wheat and the chaff seem to be made of the same thing and we just need to kind of clear it all at this point, you know, on some level. Uh, that was a bit of a confused allegory, but it's fine. Um, I think I think some of the nihilism does something that um, opportunistic and sectarian organizing don't do. Also, like an overly uh, over digital mediation of left discourse doesn't do. Um, is that it tends to separate um, the left from the class and the condition of the working class and sort of discipline the left to have a prescribed sense of what is possible as well as how bad things are on uh, adapt to capitalist realism. So I've been, as I intimated earlier, focusing on sort of a diet of being with the class as is requiring a physical presence as well as rejecting the world as is requiring critical revolutionary realism instead of tailoring our politics and cultural gestures to an imaginary uh, version of the working class, which is what a lot of that is. I can remember being um, actually in the, uh, I wasn't an editor, but I did design and typesetting for socialist worker. And I was there for the editorial meetings. And frequently the ghost of like in the room was this imaginary version of the working class that didn't really exist um, in real life. And instead of doing that, be with workers as they are and make a weird socialism at the same time. Um, and I think this is kind of flows from like, you know, the golden rule of, of, of communism from uh, Marx and Engels and the communist manifesto that communists are distinguished from the other working class parties only that um, in the sectional interests they take care of the universal interests of the class and at the various stages of the development day of that class struggle, they represent the interests of a movement as a whole over time. And it seems like a lot of comrades put off that representation of the whole, and also as a lot of political artists to some future point, accepting through the back door, you know, what's, you know, what Fisher called the, you know, slow cancellation of the future by deferring to a kind of determinism that was never right, but is clearly wrong. Now we'll just wait until something happens later. And that's going to be the thing that saves us all. And the three kind of performances that you call for aberrant departures, imposition on space and time and generative imaginaries require it seems to me both that intense being with and intense rejection of the world as is um i as opposed to that fear of alienating some layer of an imaginary working class that doesn't exist by going too far right if that makes sense yeah absolutely i mean that was another thing that animated my break socialist alternative and it's another and it's a reason um, I didn't end up going with another current I was looking at uh, after Socialist Alternative, because for a time I was kind of close to the Freedom Socialist Party, the sort of 
Seattle-based uh, socialist feminist organization because, um, you know, in a lot of the sort of editorial and creative and literary work around these political revolutionary newspapers, you know, they construct uh, an imaginary working class and they construct an imaginary working class that is normal and stupid in a sense. Like it's really... Uh, normal and stupid is exactly what they yeah, do, yeah. Um, you know, because, uh, uh, you know, we were a group of like, um, me and a couple of friends were sort of high school age, like I had just graduated, uh, and my friends Andrew and Jackson uh, were still juniors in high school, and we had sort of made our way out of socialist alternative. We were looking for revolutionary politics, and we became close to the IG. Um, but, you know, I had worked, done some work on FSP's uh, Senate campaign. They were having one of their uh, union comrades, Steve Hoffman, great guy, uh, running for uh, the U.S. Senate. Um, on, you know, fairly like reformist, like left reformist sort of program. Um, and they were really nice folks. And, you know, they had like a portrait of Trotsky in their Seattle bookstore and they like published books by Canon and they talked about being Trotskyists and they didn't, you know, sort of hide and conceal their politics, at least in, in terms of outward appearances as much as Socialist Alternative had done. But um, when it came to the fundamental method, you know, the sort of BIG, uh, which we were attracted to, uh, and I'm, you know, still I'm a sympathizer of precisely because of their willingness to, you know, let it all out to really, you know, do the transitional program as the transitional program, which is, you know, to build a bridge from felt needs to the objective task of, you know, the conquest of power by the proletariat. And they, you know, didn't mince words with polemics. They didn't dilute their politics. They were just, you know, very straightforward. They were and are very straightforwardly, you know, communists, but, um, you know, to the FSP, this was, and, you know, Socialist Alternative and other sort of more opportunist groups that was characterized as being ivory tower erudite academics for basically just, you know, having really, I mean, straightforward, you know, orthodox Trotskyist politics. And so, um, you know, there's this idealized version of uh, a working class person that just you know, serves as, as a convenient, like, narrative excuse in the minds of opportunists and sectarians to, you know, not put their politics out there, to really dilute themselves and to adapt to uh, existing, you know, political consciousness and existing political backwardness and even, you know, outright chauvinism uh, in the name of, you know, speaking the language of the workers. Uh, but there is no, like, defined one language of the workers, either in terms of actual, like, what language the working class knows and also, you know, like dialect, char like characteristics, like, you know, the working class contains like a huge amount of sort of multiplicities and differences and contradictions. And so, um, uh, you know, any sort of attempt to orient towards a sense of the normal or the ordinary is sort of an adaptation to chauvinism in the sense that it's, you know, grouping everything together into ideas of normal that are, of course, you know, conditioned by the social totality. Uh, so, you know, a quote unquote normal worker uh, that uh, is being written to by these opportunist organizations is going to be, you know, a straight worker, a white worker, a cis worker, um, and generally this route, and also, you know, proletarians in this country and around the world are characterized as being uh, you know, uneducated. And that characterization bleeds into, you know, even the perspective of so-called revolutionaries. Um, and, um, you know, that's why sort of the imaginative and weird component 
is so important because, you know, if we are creating instances where, uh, you know, the revolutionary subjects, you know, the whole of the oppressed, the proletariat can, um, you know, do their own thinking and do, do their own, um, you know, forms of creation and expression and also not seeing ourselves as necessarily apart from the class, right? Because um, the whole point of something like, I don't know, like a quote unquote turn to industry uh, to, you know, borrow a piece of history from the most, like, pretty much the most chauvinist so-called socialist group in the U.S. right now, the latter day SWP, which now, you know, hates trans people, really likes, uh, you know, uh, homophobic bakeries, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, the whole point of a revolutionary organization is to cultivate the self-leadership of the working class, you know, to, you know, organize the vanguard, these, you know, conscious and combative elements. And those elements can't be intercepted if, uh, you know, quote-unquote revolutionary politics are boring and boilerplate and uh, diffused and really just sort of, uh, you know, because what it amounts to is just chasing after, you know, whatever is popular or whatever seems to, on a surface level, appeal uh, to working class people. And that's a guarantee that, you know, the opportunist and sectarian left will forever be, you know, a collection of generals without armies, um, you know, because, you know, they really just wipe their hands of the difficult task of, you know, moving political and creative and imaginative consciousness forward. Um, Sorry to make sectarian remarks. <laughs> no, the generals, the generals without armies thing is interesting to me because um, I was a part of former ISO members who argued basically that we should try to be less sectarian to the rest of the revolutionary left and that maybe we wouldn't be, uh, our leaders wouldn't be generals without an army, but they could be, you know, sergeants in something that could become an army, you know, uh, after I left the ISO, I was actually in Socialist Alternative for a brief time because it was the least sectarian thing when I was in St. Louis working on, on my master's degree. Um, and uh, in South St. Louis, we had recruited. I wasn't I actually didn't join the group ever really um, until they forced me to because they kept electing me to shit. Um, and, you got a uh, similar recruit. Yeah. Uh, and I said, listen, I'm not going to agree with your line on this. And you guys, you're, you're terrible on Israel, blah, blah, blah. But, um, oh yeah. But we, uh, we ended up recruiting somebody who had been an anarchist who was running against the Democrats, uh, for a city council position and our branch, which was like 35, 40 people that had been like two or three people a couple of years ago before that, that was when SA grew really quickly. Um, voted unanimously to endorse their campaign, um, which was to the left of Sawant, actually. Um, there was nothing opportunistic about it. And we were ordered to withdraw our uh, uh, our endorsement, you know, because Lenin or, or something. Um, so we wrote, the, the leadership of the branch wrote a long letter saying, this is the conditions, this is what's happening, this is why you're wrong. And they wrote, a, they wrote us back again with a two-sentence quote from Lenin. Like uh, they wrote to a three-page letter saying, "This is why we think you're wrong." They would not engage even um, with the content of it, and I think that's something about um, the sectarian mindset. And I, and I feel like obligated to say, and I don't want to get off on a tangent about like because I'd also like to talk about art and culture and stuff too. But um, well, I'm in favor of being weird and not disdaining to hide our goals. Like there is a history historically of the Spartacists being 
kind of destructive on the left, um, attacking SWP meetings in the 1970s, like physically attacking them um, before the SWP's complete degeneration under the, the Barnes leadership. And they actually broke a friend of mine's leg in the 90s um, outside a meeting in Chicago. So I think there, there still is a, like, even though the imaginary working class that the sex and the opportunists conjure in their minds is not real, mm-hmm. um, there's still that art to the theatrical aspect of things. Like, um, um, there, you can't just put up the red flag and see your salutes, right? right? You also have to connect that red flag to the actual mm-hmm. con- consciousness and organization that's happening in, in real life, if that makes yeah. sense. And the same with political political art. We have to reflect the condition of lived experience as, as it is, not just, uh, you know, again, like Breck tries to, like, imagine Soviets in the theater, not just on the stage, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if that, if that makes sense. Anyway. Right. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I agree with a lot of that. Um, and it's interesting... Um, you know, I wrote uh, a few documents uh, around my break from socialist alternative that are in this, uh, and also from the debates uh, my comrades and I had with FSP that are in this internationalist group pamphlet, uh, Left Reformists and Existential Crisis, uh, that um, has some good material also from, you know, a comrade who left the IMT. Uh, there's some reflections on the collapse of the ISO um, and so on uh, in there. Um, it's, it's interesting to sort of hear about your experiences with socialist alternative because um, I always uh, had some questions about um, some of their positions on things uh, while I was uh, sort of in and around and very active uh, uh, in that organization at the time. One sort of note, I guess while we're talking about the ups and downs of the Spartacist League, one thing that did sort of inspire uh, well, the abbreviation ICL or Realist Combat League is sort of a riff on the Spartacists because their inter- right. their tendency is the International Communist League. And well, no, I I'm the ICL. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, the other ICLs are the other ICLs fake. They've they, they've abandoned. Uh, you know, and I mean that that is of course my position on on the Spartacist League is that you know anything that was you know all all of the actual you know good components of that organization uh, are no longer in the Spartacist League. You know, I think uh, the IG is a sort of, you know, continuity with that that's a lot um, healthier than sort of a lot of what I um, hear about some aspects of the SL and behavior of certain uh, SL members previously. But also they had this, like, their youth organization got banned at San Francisco State University, I believe, in, like, 86 and so they started a they basically did like a theater campaign uh they renamed themselves the the red avengers and they basically did like a week-long campaign of like dressing up like urban gorillas and sort of clowning on (laughs) the student government um and this is like documented in the pages of young spartacus and workers vanguard like it's like in there like you know the sl of all groups, you know, the, the Spartacists, which are caricatured, um, and, you know, having encountered some Latter-day Spartacists at Left Forum in 2018, you know, there's an element of truth to it uh, as, you know, these very shrill, um, you know, 
like boring sort of sectarians that are just repeating the same thing and they're getting really angry and there's no dynamism to that. Weirdly enough, you know, the group with that caricature was the one that had this really funny campaign, genuinely funny campaign of, you know, being like a clandestine army at SFSU and making fun of the student government and dressing up and like wearing pig heads, like fake Halloween pig heads and stuff. And it's that sort of like, like polemical clowning, I think is something that was a point of inspiration uh, with the Realist Combat League. Uh, you know, the sort of blending of sort of, you know, polemic and like program with uh, the capacity for laughter, you know, which, uh, you know, to practice the greatest sort of invitation for thinking um, and with, you know, the performative and uh, all of that, like that was really inspiring to me. Um, you'll have to tell me at, at a later time about uh, your friend's leg because that sounds like quite a story. Uh... <laughs> yeah, no, they, 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 well, they would physically disrupt uh, meetings of whatever the largest socialist group was in town. Mm. And when it stopped being the SWP and started being the ISO, uh, they would disrupt our meetings um, when I, when I was there. And so after they did this several times, they were eventually banned from coming inside. Mm. And my friend told them that they weren't allowed to come inside because they kept interrupting everything. And they uh, kicked his leg downward. They started a fight and uh, broke it. And oh, uh, he was a U- he was a UPS driver. We won't have to go on all of that now. Yeah. <laughs> what are the, what are the things that? There was one of the things that happens, particularly to the largest left group. I think SA went through this. The ISO went for it through it. Is just feeling like we're the chosen few, right? Um, and it gets ratified because of your size, because you got mm-hmm. one question right at the right moment, basically, and you were lucky or, or whatever. Um, and I remember there was a group called the League for a Revolutionary Party, and it was literally like oh, five yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And. Uh, and we used to just call them those three revolutionary guys or, or whatever. And they would denounce us, but they would do so without interrupting other people. And so we didn't, you know, we were fine with them coming around. Uh, but then the ISO collapses and the League for Revolutionary Party is now larger than the ISO that doesn't exist at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And that's the kind of sectarian hubris that does it. I'll stop talking about sectariana now. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I feel somehow guilty talking about it. Uh, no, it's, I, it's like a special I, interest of mine. I, I, I know way too much genealogy and, or sectology, if you will. Sectology. Um, and again, and it's not like these, like, SA has done some good stuff. ISO did some good stuff. It's, none of these groups are all anything or another thing. Like, yeah. You know, there's always people who do good things in you yeah. know, any organization, even if its line is really bad, you know, like... Um, I think there is a sort of tendency in polemics to sort of treat, um, you know, members of like, I guess, quote unquote, like ostensibly revolutionary organizations to use, um, you know, a Spartacist term or like um, opponent organizations and stuff like that. Like, you know, sometimes it's sort of lost that people with the wrong line are still people. Um, and I think like what makes clowning so compelling and sort of like performative polemics so compelling as an idea to me is that, you know, it, I mean, cause one of the, one of, while we're talking about the SL, I mean, workers Vanguard had a lot of really funny headlines, uh, and a lot of, you know, there, there, there was a certain humor to it in its better days. Um, and I, don't know, I was trying to, I guess, separate 
the sort of um, separating humor from hubris, I guess, is like an element of performative clowning. Humor and hubris, that's a huge, huge uh, thing among socialists. I mean, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, the leadership of the ISO really hated it when we made a joke about them uh, trying to be infallible like a pope. They really hated that. But I thought it was the funniest line. Yeah. Really polite and comradely, but uh, didn't. Anyway, whatever. I think it's. I mean, at least you didn't call them Protestants. That would have been worse. Like, (laughs) you know, at least you did them. Like, you know, if you're if you're going to call somebody a religious leader, you may as well (laughs) compare them to the Pope. Well, the the Trotskyists left splits like Baptists do. So That's if you are familiar with Baptists, yeah, because once yeah. Ev- because like once because the Baptists, if everybody has a connection to God, well, you might as well everybody individually be your own church, right? So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, I think it's time for our next music break, uh, which is "Pet Mosquitoes Don't Shoot," a lovely song about being shot at a school shooting, I think. That's what I got from the lyrics. Again, petmosquito.bandcap.com. Their Instagram is at petmosquito. That was Pet Mosquitoes Don't Shoot. Again, petmosquito.bandcap.com. Their Instagram is at petmosquito. I think it's time to read theses 13 through 16, if everyone is cool with that, and Alex will oblige. We are cool. Yeah. 13. These performances tend to be reproductive, preparations for the hour of action. 
the picket line, capture the flag derive, which brings one's which brings one close to the streets on which there will one day stand barricades, the line rehearsal of the study group, all such activities are staging for the final performance of the conquest of power. Momentary confrontations, too, are preparatory. Every routing of the enemy is the triumph of the class and the process of becoming. 14. In its performances, the theatrical party constructs itself as an entity of the radical weird, a regiment for self-instrumentalized otherness, for the active disruption of the order of things. It responds to the problem of alienation by cohering the collective alien, a body irreconcilably out of and opposed to systems of domination. 15. Above all, the struggle for the theatrical party is a struggle to render revolutionary politics tactile. The call for the theatrical party is a call to abandon all high-minded pretense, doctrinarism, abstentionism, opportunism, condescension, and hack-writing. So long as Marxism stands divorced by one means or another from the revolutionary class, the real movement, and the motions of lived existence, it is not Marxism but a philosophy of the inert. The same must be said for art. 16. Learn to think, dare to dream. That is the line of march of the theatrical party. There is no better start for thinking than laughter, and no greater comedy than the death of the old and the first awkward advances of the new. Uh, I just... we it. Um, your last point there about thinking with laughter, like we've talked about that before. Like there's something about, there's something like sort of, I don't know, glum is for lack of a better word about the way some people on the left sort of approach, like what we're doing, or maybe they're taking it too seriously or seriously in the wrong way. Like part of this whole process should be enjoyable because we're like working towards the total liberation of, the working class, right? That's great. That's a thing to celebrate. Like there's, there's sort of a, I don't know, like an eeyoreness to, to some leftists. I think sometimes that, it, that, that sort of reminded me of us talking about that we need to enjoy this more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I probably will end up slaughtering this because it's way too general, but the idea of the active disruption of the order of things, um, like I think about, I think about the experiments in the Soviet Union, and and uh, again I come back to this book that I just finished reading um, about photography and and uh, capitalism, and um, how there was one chapter in there that talks about how the Soviet Union under, especially uh, under Stalin, um, really uh, used photography in ways that um, were very limiting and very um, about putting out well propaganda. I mean, on the one hand, yes, they need pro they needed propaganda because they were being attacked on all sides. Like that's that's a reality. But on the other hand, um, in the ways that the that socialist realism became a thing that displaced um, the kinds of early movements of artists in the in the young Soviet Union, which was far more disruption of the order of things and uh, laughter and uh, exploration and um, really getting to to expression individualistic expression as well as collective um that that there was that there was this time when when we became 
by we, I'm, I'm, I'm including the Soviet Union is part of our history, whether we agree with things that happened there or we don't. It's part of our, it's part of our history, everything having to do with these experiments in Marxism or so-called Marxism um, are part of that. And, and there's just so much, I think that to be seen, um, like, um, I just, uh, I'm such a, a lover of constructivist art and, and the hope and the optimism and, and even the optimism within Dada, which wasn't in many ways, wouldn't necessarily call itself optimistic, but there was a sense of play. There was a sense of, 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 uh, really trying to get at, at, um, at expression and, and, um, work through the nonsense as well as, uh, you know, whatever was there. I, I guess I'm, I'm trailing off here, but um, I guess that goes back to this idea of putting the cart before the horse and the whole sectarianism and, and you know, Marxism as a religion, uh, getting to the worst kinds of uh, collective um, foibles that that groups can go through and i guess that refers back to the the section that we were talking about before the music but um yeah um i i the whole disruption of order i guess that's a question um disrupting the order that's not productive versus supporting the order that is building and being constructive and helpful um, yeah, just thinking out loud there. Yeah, I guess it's a sort of counterposing of like, you know, organized pessimism to, you know, the organization of this mode of production, uh, you know, in sort of combating and opposing and disrupting, um, you know, everyday life uh, under this like regime of alienated labor. Uh, you know, in doing that, in sort of imposing proletarian will on space and time, uh, you know, we're sort of cohering our own organization, our own, you know, sort of organs of action, our own, you know, means of conducting ourselves um, in a way that, um, you know, runs counter uh, to life under capitalism. And I sort of see it as like, I, I see the sort of like performance uh, that we're working on uh, in the ICL as a sort of like extension of situationist practice in a sense, you know, because, um, you know, the situation was something that like the board and the situationists saw as fundamentally ephemeral and they liked its ephemerality. They liked that it was the sort of moment, you know, literally a momentary ambiance. Um, but, um, and you know, that has its value and we, you know, are planning to do stuff like organizing dairy bays and, you know, all of these other practices uh, derived from the sort of situationist tendency, but, um, you know, especially in the sort of age of capitalist realism, where it's hard to imagine a future, it's hard to imagine anything changing materially or socially, uh, you know, it's sort of important to make a mark, you know, it's important to have that sort of imposition on lived existence, uh, to sort of, you know, interact with built environment in a tactile way to interact with each other in a tactile way to really have a sort of lasting uh, impact, you know, because, um, uh, I don't know, it makes me think about the phrase, you know, theater of war, uh, you know, like, you know, the class war is also a theater. Um, and, 
part of managing a theater of war is directing, um, you know, operations. Um, and so one could say that, um, you know, we're attempting to do our own sort of operations in the, you know, theater of class war and class war theater um, in, uh, you know, doing this whole like multiplicity uh, perhaps too many different like forms that could technically fulfill these like criteria we've laid out for like what the performance is uh, for the Aurelius Combat League. And I guess um, something that I'm kind of looking forward to as we sort of actually put these theoretical ideas into practice is like, you know, how our attempt at this like construction of performances like concretely specifies itself, like to determine like, you know, what works and what doesn't, like, what is the, you know, physical impact on space, but also more importantly, this sort of temporal organization on consciousness, organization, what persistence, you know, like asking questions like, you know, who is brought in by what we do and why, like who sticks around, like, is there any sort of like future action? Is there any propulsion or is, it, is there inertia? Do we start any, any debates? Do we get any sort of responses? Like, um, yeah, um, it's sort of that, like, I don't know, like revolutionary vitality that animated a lot of, um, you know, experimentation and transgression, uh, in the early Soviet Union that we're trying to recapture in opposition to the sort of Stalinist form of, you know, the sort of return to normal and something in tandem with photography and socialist realism that's sort of interesting in thinking about you know, Stalinism and normalcy, uh, you know, an orientation to the normal as a form of sort of chauvinism uh, is um, there was a whole phenomenon of the return of like the forms of folklore under Stalin. There was what was called pseudo folklore. And they essentially like, there, there are like epic poems that were written about the Moscow Metro, which that's one of the pseudo folklore pieces that's actually very good uh, if you get a chance to read it. Because um, it's like this whole like, you know, uh, like novelty about the, the construction of the Moscow subway, and it's really great. But what that sort of signifies is a sort of rearing, uh, you know, the past rearing its head over the socialist project. Uh, and, um, you know, we're trying to sort of uh, capture what preceded that and what that sort of return to normal extinguished. Have you, have you ever read Gladkoff's Cement? I have not, uh, no. It's a heroic novel about increasing cement production. Um, and it's such a telling contradiction to, like, you know, the early Soviet novels, like, or the collections of writings, like Isaac Babel's Red Cavalry, or, um, you know, uh, uh, Heart of a Dog by a... Uh, anyway, uh, I... Th so it's, it's, it's very telling, because it's also, like, a recapitulation, um, like the novel Cement. The heroes are people who, the workers who do the most output uh, uh, of production per hour produce the most widgets, which is, like you said, it's capitalist relations coming back, um, whatever we think the actual class nature of the Soviet Union was, um, because workers aren't in control of production. When you say the struggle for the theatrical party is to, uh, a struggle to render revolutionary politics tactile, I sort of like think of a realist cultural practice as a kind of like alchemy or something that paradoxically seeks to rescue the materiality of Marxism from a kind of platonic abstraction, right? Uh, philosophy, the inert, I think is what you, what, what, how, is how you put it. 
And I've mentioned this to Tish and Laura before. I've often been struck in leftist organizations how much discuss and also almost the academic Marxist left, how much discussion of theory there is or on left organizations perfection of lines compared to how little practice there is in terms of actual organizing. Um, you know, since starting Locust Review, I realized how much closer theory and practice were for us as artists and creative writers than they were for some of the comrades I knew in ISO, SA, Tempest, Solidarity. I think those are the, the far left groups I've been in, um, uh, depending on where I lived, as well as academics. And that's changed lately for us here because um, we're connected to some real ongoing organic organizing. Um, in labor solidarity work because there's some union contracts coming up and because the Starbucks workers here just organized and there's discussion amongst other low-wage service workers who are trying to organize unions um, at their workplaces um, and because of the recent events around Roe v. Wade um, being that we'll be the farthest south place with full reproductive care for hundreds of miles as well as gender-affirming care meaning there's a whole bunch of people here trying to organize to facilitate um, and protect healthcare uh, refugees who will be coming here. And that's connected to the realist cultural work at Balm that Tish and I are involved in uh, because it's an art space and an installation, but it's also an organizing space. And a lot of these things meet there, um, workers from Starbucks, people organizing with the uh, Southern Illinois Reproductive Justice Network um, that was founded over the summer. And it's kind of interesting to me in relation to that, how dematerialized a lot of historical materialist discourse can be um, in relationship to the material being of the working class subject. Um, and just how concrete irrealism can be, imagining a, a different world can be concretized in, in a real way. And I'm curious in terms of like, you know, I know y'all are just starting the Realist Combat League and you were sort of talking about some of the theoretical considerations that you're having in terms of thinking about future actions and organizing. But I wondered if you had, because there's some really amazing stuff that I'm sure could be done going back to the sort of um, almost uh, situationist sort of like uh, uh, clowning performative things um, and how those could be connected to ongoing organizing from working class or subaltern subjects and stuff like that. And I'm asking partly because I want to steal those ideas and do them here. Um, one thing <laughs> we're planning on doing, so I guess some background on where we're organizing at is sort of called for. So um, the Evergreen State College is in Olympia, Washington, which is, um, you know, where I'm at. And um, it's historically an anarchist dominated uh, town like Crime Sync's office is here. Like, there's a whole, um, you know, there's sort of, there were sort of a lot of social anarchists, but also a lot of the sort of nihilist anti civ types. There was a group that sort of dominated the organizing scene for a time called Olympia Assembly, which was sort of like a book tonight organization, you know, very interested in social ecology, municipalism, assemblies, etc. Um, and uh, also a lot of anti fascist stuff happens here. Um, there was a really impressive like blockade of the port of Olympia against the sending of fracking sands to North Dakota during the Dakota Access Pipeline struggle. Um, but currently, like the state of things is like there's a sort of 
nominally active DSA chapter that's done some work with the uh, Starbucks workers out of West Olympia Starbucks location. Um, but beyond some low-level DSA stuff, there's really nothing happening here anymore because there was a lot of, um, you know, the pandemic really nuked a lot of people's social networks, especially for more informal, an uh, like, anarchist-type organizing. Um, a lot of people also moved uh, elsewhere. There were a lot of, there was a sort of organizing core of a lot of people who ended up graduating and moving out. There was the whole right-wing media frenzy against the Evergreen State College uh, during the 2017 anti-racist protests on campus, which I've written about a little bit uh, in the People Point Journal. Um, and so there was basically a whole combination of factors that really just evaporated this whole pretty dynamic, pretty persistent, uh, you know, punk type anarchist scene. And so one of the things we're trying to do with um, the Realist Combat League and with our sort of like quasi like sister project, the Revolutionary Education Distro, is to try to sort of regenerate some of that organizing and try to intercept people whose primary political engagement um, in this city that doesn't really have much of like a left in an organized way. You know, we're trying to interact and intercept with people whose primary political engagement comes generally through like anarchism and like the punk scene. And, you know, so we're trying to sort of, you know, do like distro work outside of shows at venues and stuff like that. And hopefully, you know, we're trying, we're hoping on some level that we can try to cultivate art space, organizing space links through sort of building relationships with, um, you know, local like venues, punk houses, et cetera, that we end up doing, you know, distribution of ICL material and revolutionary education distro stuff, which that's a whole other project that we're sort of thinking about like graphic design and designing like a tactility with revolutionary texts and also like literary montage and sort of combining and rearranging theoretical texts. But in terms of like performances and like what we might actually do, um, what we're sort of planning currently is uh, a protest about nothing uh, where a core of us are going to dress up uh, we're we're going to try and get people to dress up as uh, Seinfeld characters. No one will be Jerry. There will be no Jerry at the protest against nothing. Um, I will probably be Commander Kramer. Uh, and essentially, we're sort of taking... Uh, it takes some inspiration from um, the... Uh, the part of capitalist realism about, like, what if you hold the protest that everybody came? You know, we're sort of doing this act of uh, clowning as um, uh, sort of, you know, making fun of the impotence uh, that's often had in sort of like, you know, sidewalk type street protests with watered down politics and so on, but also in doing so, um, you know, I mean, there's some reproductive rights stuff happening, you know, there's a slow sort of reemergence, but in sort of attack and sort of playfully attacking the political impotence of a lot of protests, we're also sort of, um, you know, making it there be an instance where, um, and, you know, not everybody who, ha who comes has to dress as a Seinfeld character. That's just sort of a thing that we will personally be doing as the ICL. Um, uh, you know, we sort of want to break the sort of cycle of there not being anything, you know, breaking the silence of protests. We're sort of, you know, having one that's making fun of the concept of protests on some level to sort of restore uh, the protest is something that happens and is frequent. Um, there was also, um, there was this Cooper Point Journal related thing where we go, we were going to, um, there, it was positive that we might like storm 
the office of the college president in order to avenge uh, the death of the college's mascot, Speedy the Gooey Duck, which um, had been, there was a sort of satirical uh, series in the Food Point Journal about how, like, you know, uh, Speedy Gooey Duck had been dis- like disposed of in Mexico by the administration of the Board of Trustees so that they could, like, it, it was making fun of conspiracy theories. But yeah, so we're sort of thinking about like the protest as performance and um, sort of having an ironic tinge to that in order to sort of, I don't know, get a sense of what we can do. Um, there's also um, a play we have in mind that I wrote for a program, a uh, short film idea. Um, a lot of it is sort of centering around the theoretical and literary work right now, but um, we, we do have some ideas for sort of mock protests and um, other potential, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what we can do, really. Uh, it'll be good to get some brainstorming done soon, for sure. I like the, the everyone dressed as Seinfeld characters, but no Seinfeld. It's awesome. Well, he's terrible. You know about the, the Berlin Dada uh, Soviet prank, right? Uh, I think so, but you should remind the listeners. Uh, 1919, early Berlin Dada, in that period between the founding of Berlin Dada when everybody got arrested for the Dada International Art Fair, they basically put out a press release at a time when press releases were a totally new thing, declaring that one of the suburbs of Berlin had declared itself a Dada Soviet Republic. (laughs) And uh, the only... 2,000 police officers and soldiers showed up and no one else. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, um, it's harder to... That was when culture jamming was so new, it wasn't called that yet. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I think that uh, that is a good place probably to wrap up this part of things and transition to the other part of things, the paid part of things, where our show is partially held hostage by money, to try to get folks to support us so we can afford our microphones and shit. Um, now, before we do that, though, uh, we have a reading from Mike Lineweaver, a poem from Locust 8, Long Hours Away From Home. And let's listen to that, and then we'll see you on the other side of that in the Patreon part of the show. It's not enough, vain beggar, you holograph, holographed onto chilled paper. An image of hands curled inward, an image of smokestacks cutting across the horizon. Holographic wonder years, image imaged, crestfallen flag, shadow game of grot and grim. Give me a machine gun. This is love. This is tilting love. This is brass love, O death. Brassy death and copper rounds, spent shell casings, brassy death and comrades, green death and red death and just death enough, pocketfuls of death. Everything full and spilling, spilling and spinning away like milk, spinning away like milk in the black loam, poured away like milk into silk flashing. Life and the living, ashes and ashes. To dust I spoke. I never said a word in silence or pity. I never said a word or spoke a spell or hex or curse. It's never enough, poor worker. These hands, these hands on mine are free and calloused. 
these unknown hands far away, so far from home. Neck stained blue with sweat, hours from home. Oceans away from home by the hour. A woman breathes and waits in the night for these hands, for anything. Shades of gray from home, piles of cracked concrete from home, ages from home. Where a woman breathes and waits in the night like unfinished suicides. This is death, these parasitic hours sitting through the night, searching for gold or the tones of gold on the air, sniffing for sight in a dead break room in a camel-backed car, and these hands are a million miles from home. Christ, to work like this, to work like this forever, so far from yourself, sitting and waiting for those hands to cover yours, to work like this, spread thin like this, unbearable distances in the night. Imagine looking forward to your job because your second job swallows more time and both swallow more of you than you have. You never get you back. You fall away a piece at a time, an hour's wage at a time, groaning and dying one red cent at a time, falling out of time, your name written in thalidomide, your name falling, your bones turned to lead. These hands in the night, these hands. What's left of me, what's not left behind. I'll be home in the morning. I'll be home with the sun to curl beneath your hands, to settle in between you and the dogs, to breathe beside you in the light of the TV for a few soft hours beneath the remains of the night. Thank you for listening to part one of Locus Radio. Part two is being held ransom by a machine entity whose masters no longer remember how to control it. To liberate it and get another full hour of Locust Radio, go to patreon.com slash locustreview and subscribe for $5 a month or more. Locust Radio is hosted by Tish and Adam Turrell and Laura Fair Schultz. It's produced by Omnia Soul and Alexander Billet, with music by Omnia Soul, and additional music by Pet Mosquito 